Hi, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. This is Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and this is an introduction to an encore presentation of a podcast episode that originally aired many years ago, but is part of our June Game Changers series. So what I mean by that is we are on personal vacation for the month of June. We are moving house this month to be closer to our daughter's new school that she starts in the fall. And then we are going up to our family cabin in Canada, um, where if you are longtime listeners of the show, you know we go for a few weeks every year to get off the grids, unplug from the computers, and take a deep dive into the icy lake waters of Canada together as a family. So we will have no new episodes for the month of June, but I wanted to offer you something really special. And so what I did is I went through our almost 300 episodes of this podcast. And I picked out four episodes that got the most response from our listeners, the most people writing to us and saying that this idea was a total game changer in their erotic life. I love seeing the patterns of how people respond to these ideas and what concepts can really create aha moments for people and total shifts in how they understand sexuality. So we're going to start this four episode series for the month of June with a two part interview with Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are, which is one of the best books about female sexuality that I have ever read. This interview was originally a two-part interview split across two episodes, but I'm going to bring it all together in one long episode this week. So you have a beautiful dose of Emily Nagoski's wisdom and humor and her game-changing frameworks around sexuality. This episode is super important. Even if you listened to it a few years ago, listen to it again, and you will get something new out of it. And then let us know if this episode has a game-changing moment for you. And next week, we will be back with another game-changing episode of the Speaking of Sex podcast archives. All right, so here we go with our interview with Emily Nagoski. Hi, this is Chris from Pleasure Mechanics, and on today's episode of Speaking of Sex, we are thrilled to be welcoming Emily Nagoski as our guest. Emily is a preeminent thinker in the field of human sexuality. She has a PhD in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University and did a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. And while at Indiana University, Emily worked as an educator and docent at the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. She's also taught graduate and undergraduate classes in human sexuality, relationships, communication, stress management, and sex education. Emily currently works as a health director at a liberal arts college and blogs at thedirtynormal.com. And her new book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, is now available and is a must read for anyone interested in female pleasure. This was like my favorite book I've read about sex in such a long time. So we are thrilled to have Emily on the podcast today. Emily, thank you so much. 
Oh, thank you for talking to me. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Um, today we're going to focus on female pleasure and orgasm. I'm curious, your website is called The Dirty Normal, and the first part of your book is really emphasizing how people are tortured by the question of, am I normal? What do you think is behind this question, and what happens when people finally start understanding that their sexuality is part of the normal range of human sexuality? Well, it's the most common question any sex educator gets asked, right, yes. is some <laughs> variation on the question of am I normal? And it took me a long time to figure out what is it people are actually asking? What is it that's so essential to people about feeling normal? Because if you think about what the technical definition of normal is, it means average. And nobody really wants to be sexually average, right? You don't want to last three minutes in bed or whatever it is that technically counts as average. That's what people really want is to be healthy and whole and happy and satisfied. And to a certain extent, they want to be exceptional and extraordinary, which is the opposite of normal, right? Hmm. So what is it people are actually looking for? And I thought about it for a long time. And I have decided tentatively, I might change my mind about this one day, but <laughs> currently what I think people mean by normal is they want to know that they belong, that their experiences are shared with other people. You probably have had the experience of like standing in line to get a coffee and a stranger approaches you to ask you questions about their sex life. Yes. <laughs> this is not a thing that happens to people who aren't <laughs> sex educators and therapists, right? And the reason a stranger would approach a stranger in a coffee shop is because we can't talk to our best friends and sometimes even our own sex partners. We don't have a way to find out if what is going on with us sexually is shared by the people who are closest to us. And we worry that if we disclose something that is not shared by them, that that means there's something wrong and broken and sick and we don't belong here in the shared human experience. Um, so I think that's really what people are asking is, am I a human being the same as you? Beautiful. And I think that really fits in with the definition of sexual shame as well. This idea of wanting to belong and not be cast out when we reveal our true selves. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that so many people share this experience when we're all within this same range of human sexuality. But do you think this is because of our history and our legacy of sexual repression that we really still have this message that what is normal is such a small window and so people think that they're outside of that, even when they're perfectly normal? Yeah, I mean, for, for people who were born in female bodies in particular, we get socialized to believe that there's this very rigid, narrow window of what's acceptable in terms of our bodies. And almost all of that comes, you know, from patriarchy, from the general idea that women's bodies are in the public domain, they, are, they belong to men and not to themselves. And so we're taught to believe that what other people have to say about our bodies is more trustworthy and reliable than what our body has to say about itself. We're taught to trust other people's opinions about our bodies more than we trust our own body's experience. Yeah, and on this note, you do an amazing job talking about sexual anatomy and how our understanding of our anatomy is so culturally dependent on these messages we get. So just to give us a taste, let's talk about the hymen. You, oh. <laughs> you say that nearly everything we learn about the hymen is wrong. What is the truth about the hymen that we should know? I say that nearly everything is wrong because I myself, like so many people, 
was totally wrong about the hymen. I thought that what I learned culturally was, you know, some of that had to be true. Turns out, no. The whole thing about the hymen breaking, no. Turns out that's not true. Hymens stretch instead of breaking. And if they do break, they heal. They can bruise and they can be a source of pain, but they're one of the least likely sources of pain with intercourse, even for people who are new at having vaginal penetration. Um, what's actually true is that the hymen may or may not be a thing that you have if you have a vagina. The hymen can be all kinds of different shapes and sizes. The hymen can stay long after you're not a virgin, by which, you know, the technical definition of having a penis in your vagina is what a virgin is. Um, uh, the hymen can change over your lifespan. It can go away or it can be there when you're 95 years old. Hymens just vary and it has nothing to do with having had something in your vagina. These kinds of facts that are scattered all throughout your section on sexual anatomy, I think can be so life changing because how we think about our bodies really influences how we use them, how we share them with lovers, our sense of confidence. And so I think your section on anatomy is really a must read for any woman who wants to get to know their body or any male who wants to get to know their lover's body if it's a female. I'm curious what your process of studying anatomy has been, where you're drawing your facts from, what is your process there? I, my starting point for writing the chapter was my own lecture that I give. Um, and all of my research on the hymen happened because I was in the middle of teaching my anatomy class uh, and a student raised their hand and said, so Emily, what is the evolutionary origin of the hymen? <laughs> And I had 15 years I had been a sex educator and I never even considered the question of what the evolutionary origin of the hymen might be. And that sort of took me on this quest of looking at Google Scholar and looking at all the research I could find about what the hymen actually is and what its developmental history is. And so Google Scholar is maybe my best friend. <laughs> uh, and so that's sort of where I started. And I think this is one of your real gifts is you translate science for the rest of us. Your book is full of what you call surprising findings about sexuality. What were some of the things that surprised you the most from recent science about sex? Well, the hymen surprised me, I have to say. Um, the fact, Maybe not so much what was true about the hymen as the fact that I had been wrong for so long and not known. Uh, so that was amazing to me. I was surprised uh, so the very last chapter, this isn't necessarily about sex, but it sort of is. So we know that mindfulness meditation is helpful. Basically, it's like vegetables for your brain. It is good for you in a lot of different ways. In particular, it's good for uh, overcoming difficulties with sexual desire and arousal and pleasure. Mindfulness meditation has been tested with a lot of different populations, and it's just the most effective thing we've got so far. So my question as I was doing the research was, what is it about mindfulness that helps people to increase their sexual pleasure and their sexual desire? And it turns out, so I, my automatic assumption was that it was about the awareness. It was about tuning in to what's going on with your body and paying attention to the pleasurable sensations that are going on in there. And it turns out that was wrong. What actually is predictive of mindfulness is help with sexual desire, sexual arousal, and sexual pleasure is not the amount of awareness a person has. It's their non-judgment about what it is they're aware of. Mm. So can I can I give you a, a boring science -y example? It's not a boring example. It's an exciting <laughs> science -y example. Yes. Um, 
One of the most amazing studies that I read in the process of writing the book was a study of generalized anxiety disorder, actually. So we take a big population of people all diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, and we assess a lot of things. They assessed uh, the kind of symptoms they had, the frequency and the intensity of those symptoms. And then they assessed the five factors of mindfulness. So two of these five factors are uh, awareness of your internal experience, and another factor is non-judgment. So people who score low on non-judgment as a factor of mindfulness, uh, say things like, when I notice myself having a symptom, I tell myself I shouldn't feel that way, I try not to feel that way. Whereas people who score really high on non-judgment will say things like, when I notice myself having a system symptom, I just let that be true, I know that that's true now and it's not going to be soon. Or when I notice myself having a particular uh, anxious thought, I just notice that and recognize that that's part of the common human experience, uh, right? So. It turns out, first of all, there's no relationship between frequency or intensity of symptoms and quality of life. And that by itself is wacky. Hmm. That's amazing. You would absolutely expect, right, that frequency and intensity of symptoms would be predictive of quality of life. Turns out, no. It turns out that what's predictive of quality of life is the extent to which people are able to be non-judging of their anxious thoughts and their symptoms. And does this relate to what you call spectatoring and how it relates to being orgasmic? So yes, spectatoring is the experience. It's Everybody has it happen at least sometimes. Some people have it happen very often that while you're engaged in some sort of sexual behavior, your thoughts are not focused on what's happening inside you. They're focused on sort of thinking about how your breasts are moving and the fat on your stomach and the cottage cheese on the back of your thigh or whatever else, rather than thinking about the pleasurable sensations that are happening. Um, and the way to overcome spectatoring, because it's a real interference with sexual pleasure and arousal and particularly orgasm, is to notice that those thoughts are happening and let them go and return your attention back to the pleasurable sensations that are happening in your body right now. And that letting go process is only possible if you are really kind and gentle with yourself and don't start, because if you notice you're having these self-critical thoughts about your body, and then you start beating yourself up for having the self-critical mm -hmm. thoughts, like, is that gonna make it better? Yeah, it's probably going to make it a little harder to let go of those thoughts. So your ability to be like, oh, look, there are the self-critical thoughts. Let me just let those go temporarily. I can go back to them anytime I want to. And right now I'm just going to shift my attention to the sensations inside my body. Yeah. Hmm. So it's both that non-judgmental mindset and bringing your awareness back to sensation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. On your blog for a long time, you've been talking about the difference between spontaneous and responsive desire. And we find this concept really helps a lot of women better understand their sexuality. Can you share a bit more about this and why it is such an aha moment for so many? Absolutely. I think one of the most important ideas in the book and probably one of the most important ideas on the blog too, uh, the idea that so most of us get taught that the way sexual desire is supposed to work is it should be spontaneous and out of the blue. You're just sitting there at lunch and a stray sexy thought crosses your mind and you go, oh, I would really like to go get me some sex. Mm, how can I get some sex? I would like sex, <laughs> right? Which is, it's absolutely how some people do experience desire. If we're going to be categorical about it, more men than women experience desire this way for more of their life. 
But another way to experience desire is for it not to cross your mind until you're in a sexy, pleasurable state of mind and your partner starts kissing on you and your brain goes, oh, right, sex, that's a really good idea. It's normal not to want, not to have an active desire for sex until sex is already beginning. It makes things complicated in a relationship sometimes if both people expect desire to be spontaneous and one partner experiences it as responsive, it can create tangled knots in initiation, right? So if one partner is spontaneous and one partner is responsive in their desire style, then the spontaneous partner feels like they're always doing the initiating and the responsive desire partner needs to come up with some strategies to sometimes do some of the initiating if that's what works for the relationship. Does that make sense? Totally. And another question I have about it that I've been trying to work with some women on is how do you manage responsive desire while also not having sex that you don't want to be having? So in yeah. other words, you allow the foreplay to begin and you see if you get in the zone or not. And then you really have to be communicative and responsive and tell your lover what you're up for, right? Right. So it's like getting to know your own patterns and being open to intimacy, but not necessarily expecting the responsive desire to work every time. Yeah, I think this is a really central, crucial, important question, because it's easy to hear about responsive desire and think that means that women don't know what they want. And what we really need to do is learn to think distinctly about pleasure, liking, versus desire, wanting. So one of the things I talk about in chapter three when I get really nerdy mm -hmm. is I talk about the distinction at the neuroanatomical level between liking and wanting. Desire, we're generally conceptualizing as wanting, which is where you're moving towards something. You have a goal that you want to get to right? That's desire. There's something missing and you want to get that thing. Liking is just pleasure. And you can have lots and lots of pleasure without necessarily an active desire to move toward more, right? Does that make sense? Yes. So the way to create a context that allows desire to emerge is to create a context that allows you to experience a lot of pleasure. And everybody's got a, cross, a threshold that they cross from liking into wanting. This is true for everybody, even people who have spontaneous desire. Arousal, the pleasure, comes first, and then comes the wanting. For people with spontaneous desire, they have a really low threshold where they're very sensitive to the liking and transition very readily into wanting. People with a responsive desire style have a higher threshold where they need to accumulate a whole lot more liking before they cross that threshold into wanting. So I think this is a really important tool for people to look at and a benefit from your book. And another one is when you talked about the inhibitors and the accelerators. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about how this model emerged and why you focus so heavily on it as a way of understanding sexuality? Yes. The reason I focus so heavily on it is because when I first learned about it in, I think, 2000, it I had already been a sex educator for, I think, five years or so. And learning about the dual control model, I felt like my whole head was being cracked open and my brain got shaken out onto the table and then reassembled back in my brain. And everything about sex made a whole new kind of sense. Uh, and it makes, once you understand, like when you hear it, you're like, how did I understand anything about human sexuality without knowing about the dual control model? Mm. What it says basically 
is that the sexual response mechanism in the central nervous system is a pairing of an accelerator, like a gas pedal that responds to sexually relevant stimuli, and the brakes that respond to all the really good reasons not to be turned on right now. And most of us are really familiar with the idea of an accelerator where you add sexually relevant stimuli. So for a lot of us, that's lingerie or a sexy story or a sex toy or a game or role play or whatever, like you're adding sexually relevant stuff to increase desire levels. It turns out a much stronger predictor of sexual difficulties is too much stimulation to the break. And the break is responding to simple things like unwanted pregnancy or STI transmission or more complex things like relationship and trust issues or reputation or even more complex long-term things like body image and cultural learning about sexual shame. All that stuff is hitting the brakes and it doesn't matter how hard you hit the accelerator. If the brakes are down, you're still not going to go anywhere. And when I had this, like, I remember so clearly sitting in the Kinsey Institute clinic meeting, hearing John Bancroft talk about the dual control model. And the inspiration for it came from noticing that the way pretty much every other motivational system in the central nervous system worked was with a pairing of brakes and gas. So why wouldn't sex work the same way as every other motivational system in our central nervous system? Not only does it make perfect sense that sex would work the same way, but when you contextualize sexual response in the context of humans are mammals, mammals are a sexually reproducing species, sex for us is a much more complex thing because it's not just about reproduction. We're not deer where the females are interested in sex about three weeks out of the year and never at any other time. We're these really complex mammals who can be interested in sex all year, including when mm -hmm. we're menstruating and when we're already pregnant or breastfeeding very regularly. We can want sex all the time because sex isn't just reproductive for us, right? Sex is also a profoundly social experience. It's primarily almost all the sex we have, even without contraception involved, almost all the sex we have is non-reproductive. So just from this simple idea that there's a break and an accelerator, just like every other sexual, every other motivational system in the human brain, comes the idea basically that sex is this profoundly social, natural way that humans communicate with each other about trust and affection. Hmm. I, I have not been able to teach, I can't even teach about consent anymore without talking about the dual control model. And in the book, you take us through an exercise to kind of discover if us as individuals are high inhibition. Yeah. Uh, so cis and cess are the two things. Okay. And they sound so much alike, it's hard to tell them apart. <laughs> so the excitation system is the accelerator. And the inhibition system is the break. And you talk about uh, how some people have high accelerators and low mm -hmm. breaks and vice versa. And then you can get to know yourself and take more control over your sexuality. Is that the idea for the individual? Yeah, so most of us are heaped up in the middle. This is a, a sort of like normal bell curve distribution where most of us are right in the middle. A small number of people will find that they might have an extra sensitive or not so sensitive accelerator. Um, people who identify as asexual actually are most likely to have uh, a relatively insensitive accelerator. So when sexually relevant information comes into their brains, um, their brain doesn't activate as much. Does that make sense? It does. And yeah. of course, there's lots of variability across populations. Um, and some people may find that they have an extra sensitive or not so sensitive break. 
And people with more sensitive breaks are more likely to find that they experience sexual difficulties, while people with less sensitive breaks are more likely to find that they experience uh, impulse control and sexual compulsivity. It's really interesting. And you talk about how your sensitivities are pretty fixed over a lifetime. But then you also say, quote, when you understand how your sexual response mechanism works, you can begin to take control of your environment and your brain in order to maximize your sexual potential, even in a broken world. And when you change your environment and your brain, you can change and heal your sexual functioning. So what do you think about the idea that we can change our sexuality, we can take control of our brain and how it works in the bedroom? Like how much agency do we have over this? It's um, you know, quantitatively how much agency? About 80% agency, <laughs> approximately, um, because very little of this is uh, genetic. There's really there's very little genetic basis to the sensitivity. I have this terrible metaphor that I don't know if this is going to work for you or not. But um, if you have an oven, it's the same oven you've had in your kitchen for 20 years, and you know that it has its quirks, Right. The more you know about the quirks of that oven, the more control over you have over the souffle you bake. Mm -hmm. So if you can take into account that there's a hot spot and you're going to need to turn it, but if you keep the door open for too long, that's not going to be so good. So you learn, you develop a skill for making sure you can turn your souffle in a limited amount of time to keep the heat in the oven and make sure it bakes evenly. So if you have a quirky oven, all you need to do is learn how to use it. And maybe it would be convenient if you could just get a new stove but if this is the stove you have the oven you have you learn to work with it mm-hmm. i love food metaphors okay <laughs> and i struggle with food metaphors because sex is not a drive Ooh. do you want to talk a little bit about that because that's another one of those things you debunk this idea of the sex drive yeah i it's a it's a big deal for me i don't know how much anyone else besides me cares but i really feel like it's important that we all let go Uh, I know it's a very convenient, comfortable thing to say, sex drive, but sex is not a drive. So the reason this is important is, so here's what a drive is. A drive is where you have an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes you out into the world to go fix your return to a comfortable baseline state. So hunger acts as a drive very often. You get an uncomfortable internal experience, hunger, that pushes you out into the world to go get food. And then you get full and you return to the allostatic baseline, right? Thirst is the same way. Your fluid levels get too low, you consume fluids, and your fluid levels return to baseline and you feel satisfied, right? And drives are all about survival. If you don't do these things as an organism, you will literally die. So to call sex a drive is to say that if you don't get the sex, then you're going to die, And as Frank Beach, the behavioral researcher from the 1950s pointed out, nobody ever died because they couldn't get laid. Sex is not a drive. It is not an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes you out into the world so that you can survive. It is instead an incentive motivation system. When to say sex incentive motivation system is less (laughs) fun than saying drive, I know that. So I've, I've been looking for language that's as fun as drive. But so what that means is there's some appetitive, desirable external stimulus that pulls you out into the world, some goal that you would like to attain, some delicious something or other that you're moved toward by how desirable it is. Does that make sense? It does. So it works not like hunger, but like curiosity. 
And yet some people would say, if I don't get laid soon, I'm going to die. Yeah, and there absolutely are times for some people where it feels, how calm, Emily, it feels like an uncomfortable internal experience. And there's this whole other mechanism. This is one of the things I learned about right before I started writing the book. When I learned about it, I was like, okay, this is maybe the most important idea I have learned in the last 10 years. And it is the criterion velocity and discrepancy reducing feedback loop, which I can translate that into English. I call it the little monitor. Uh, So here's the thing. You've got this little monitor in your emotional brain that knows what your goal is. It knows how much effort you're investing and it knows how much progress you're making. Right. And it's got this ratio. This little monitor has a ratio of uh, progress to effort Hmm. and it has a very strong opinion about what that ratio should be. So when you're putting in just a little bit of effort and making a whole lot of progress towards your goal, how does that feel? Yay. Yeah, it's awesome. Like if you're driving to the mall in America, it takes 20 minutes to get to the mall. It doesn't matter where you are. It takes 20 minutes, right? So you get in the car and you're like, you're getting all the green lights and there's no traffic and you're zipping right through. It feels hugely rewarding and great. But if there's a lot of traffic and you're getting a lot of red lights, you begin to get frustrated because it's taking longer than it is supposed to take, right? It's more effortful than it should be. Uh, And if there's a big accident, and you're just like sitting there parked on the highway, you move beyond frustration and into rage. And then eventually you cross a threshold, the little monitor crosses a threshold from believing your goal state is attainable to the belief that the goal state, going to the mall or whatever, is not attainable and it pushes you off an emotional cliff into the pit of despair and you just abandon all hope and give up when they do research on rats okay this is a much longer answer than you probably wanted it to be (laughs) but but the little monitor basically so if we apply this to sex what we get is so take orgasm for well no we're talking about sex being a drive sexual desire so in the context of sexual desire if a person believes that sex is supposed to be a certain level of difficulty to obtain and it takes more than that for them to get sex, then they begin to get frustrated. And that is the uncomfortable internal experience. It's not the desire for sex itself that's uncomfortable. It's people's frustration about it being more challenging to obtain the sex that they want than they expect it is supposed to take. And so is this one of the things that leads to sexless marriages when people stop initiating and stop trying after too much rejection? I I think it can be. So I think when you look at the structure of the system of the discrepancy of the little monitor, uh, what it tells us is there's three ways that we can create change, right? One, we can change the goal. Is this actually the right goal for me? We can change the kind or quantity of effort we're investing, or we can change the opinion, the criterion velocity itself. How difficult is this goal supposed to be? Um, So if we, I think, when it comes to one of the reasons why sex goes away in relationships, part of it is that people are finding they have to invest more effort and a totally different kind of effort from what they thought they were supposed to have to invest. Uh, I was at a conference about a year and a half ago, uh, and I was talking about responsive desire and the dual control model with this woman who was sitting next to me at the conference at lunch. And she said, could you please tell my husband that so that he can stop asking me if I want to have sex in the morning when I'm in the middle of changing the baby's diaper? Do you want to have sex tonight? (laughs) No. The answer is no. The kind of effort he's investing in initiating sex is not the kind of effort that is going to get him where he wants to go. Mm -hmm. And he means well, 
how great that he's actually asking, right? But he's asking in a way and in a context that is unlikely to get him what it is he's actually looking for. So sometimes really what it takes is learning better strategies for getting where you want to go. I love it. And I think this is what your book really shines in is taking these kind of complex ideas and making them applicable to our everyday lives. And I want to get back to orgasm because you have so much great advice about women who are struggling with orgasm. And we hear specifically from a lot of women who have orgasms alone, but not with partners. Yes. What does some of your scientific research point to why that would be? So I think most of the time it comes down to the accelerator and brakes thing, right? If a person can have an orgasm on their own, that means that the accelerator and brake are fully functional in that particular context. But then you change the context, say you put a partner in the room, and that changes what the break has to respond to. So very often, I've also heard from women who can orgasm when their partners are there, but cannot orgasm on their own. Mm -hmm. So it really is just a matter of like what your individual brain learns to respond to is sexually relevant versus a potential threat. And for a lot of women, having your partner in the room increases your level of self-consciousness uh, and you that keeps the brake on. And again, it doesn't matter how hard you hit the accelerator, if the brakes are on, you're not going to get there. So it takes the process of teaching your brain that, look, you're totally safe. You can relax and you don't have to respond with the brakes to having your partner in the room, which is why gradual systematic desensitization type interventions can be so effective. It's a gentle way of teaching your brake look, this isn't a threat. You can get all the way to orgasm and you're totally safe and it's nothing to worry about and it can feel really good. And what does that process look like? Is it a matter of reprogramming your brain with new messages or is there something else? It's practice. It's recurbing your entire body. So uh, the first week, so if it's across weeks, the first week you would try just, you know, masturbating the way you usually do on your own. And then the second week you have a picture of your partner face down in the room with you. And then the week after that, you masturbate several times a week with the picture of your partner face up in the room with you, but the lights wow. are off, so you can't actually see it. And then the next week, the picture's there <laughs> face up and the lights are on. So very gradually, you're exposing your body and brain to simultaneous orgasm arousal and also increasingly close the presence of your partner. Wow. And you can, you can use Skype as a gradual process. You can use having your partner there in the dark, in the dark, but with candles in the room. And then the next week in your partner, with your partner, with candles in the room and one candle lit. So gradually, really gradually, but your partner not touching you just in the room. And then gradually they're on the bed with you and then they're touching you, but not doing the genital sensations. You do that yourself with the gradual increase in sensitivity. Amazing. That is gradual. <laughs> it is. And, and not everybody needs to do it that gradually. Yeah. Some people, once they recognize that what's happening is their partner there is hitting the brakes, they can just be like, oh, well, I completely trust my partner. That's all nonsense. That's just cultural crap that I absorbed. Let me let that go. And it happens right away. Right. We talked recently to a woman who had so much kind of Catholic shame that she felt her mother was in the bedroom with her. And mm. we kind of gave her permission to kick her mother out of bed and start reevaluating her own values around premarital sex. And it's interesting to hear back from these people who just with permission can change their mindset and start changing their scripts. Mm -hmm. And so I think this idea of the changeability and malleability of our sexuality of our lifetime is really important because so many people do feel stuck 
in their struggle or stuck in a rut and feel kind of hopeless. And all of this information and all of these theories give us hope that we can change. And that's so important. Mm -hmm. And that's a really great example of the individual differences. Um, Because if a person has a very sensitive break, it will be a slower process for them to let go of these things. A person with just an ordinary average kind of break will let go of things more readily. Right. And especially once you start identifying the specific factors that are causing that break to trigger, you get to discover your own path again. Mm -hmm. Um, We hear a lot about clitoral orgasms versus vaginal orgasms. And some people love making these lists of all the different kinds of orgasms women can have. What do you make of this? Are there different types of orgasms or just different experiences of various combinations of sensations? Right. Oh, I have such a strong opinion about this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> my strong opinion, and I look. I looked at a lot of research. I actually had to change my definition of orgasm after I did the research for the book. Um, and so the definition I came to for the book is the spontaneous, involuntary release of sexual tension. That's it. So you'll notice there's no mention of any genital or other body parts. There's no mention of any physical sensations. It's just the spontaneous, involuntary release of sexual sensations or sexual tension. It's not even necessarily pleasurable, right? Because orgasm can happen in almost any context. And, you know, if somebody tries to tickle you when you're in a great state of mind, it can be fun. But if somebody tickles you when you're in a pissed off state of mind, you don't like it, right? Orgasm is the same way. If you have an orgasm when you're in a great sex positive state of mind, it can feel awesome. If you have an orgasm when you're in a terrible pissed off state of mind, it doesn't necessarily feel so good, right? So you can't even include pleasure necessarily in your definition of orgasm. And the reason I don't talk about any genitals is because orgasm is orgasm is orgasm. Women can have orgasms. Anybody can have orgasms from all kinds of different body parts being stimulated, their breasts and their feet and their clitorises and their vaginas and their anuses and their stomachs. And just by thinking about it or just by flexing their pubococcygeal muscle. And are we going to call each one of these orgasms a different kind of orgasm? Or can we just say that they are all orgasms and they are all great? That is my strong opinion. I don't, I mean, like, where does this, the, like Freud had this idea and he just invented it. He just decided that because patriarchy, therefore orgasm during intercourse is the good kind and orgasm from clitoral stimulation is the immature kind. And it was literally just his opinion of a Victorian European middle-aged male. He was just inventing shit. He was making it up. Why are we still paying attention to any of that shit? He said some really important, cool stuff. All the stuff about the unconscious, really, really important. Let's not dismiss Freud entirely, but let's dismiss everything Freud had to say about the clitoris. White dude Freud from the Victorian era doesn't have a useful opinion about the clitoris. Well, now it seems like sex educators get in this battle of is is ejaculation more enlightened than another another kind of orgasm? And oh, for God's sake, really? It's very divisive, I think, to create a hierarchy of orgasms being more meaningful, depending on what kind of orgasm they are. And yet we're prone to do it. And it drives me nuts. (laughs) Why are we like, why is there a better or worse? Why is there a right or wrong orgasm? How come? And why is it orgasm anyway? That's our threshold. Like, why do we have to cross into this spontaneous release of tension when pleasure is awesome whether or not you have an orgasm. 
Absolutely. That's why we're the pleasure mechanics and not the orgasm right. mechanics. Exactly. <laughs> Which I love. But it's really, we have this very complicated relationship with pleasure. Like you're not allowed to have pleasure unless it's for a purpose or unless you punish yourself afterward. So um, one of the challenges I've had teaching about sex is I am thoroughly on board with the orgasm is a byproduct. It's not an evolutionary adaptation. It doesn't serve any reproductive function. It's just a fantastic bonus Mm -hmm. from an evolutionary point of view. And I have students who hate that idea because they feel like it's making orgasm less important. That what I'm saying when I say it's not an evolutionary adaptation is that it's not valuable. I mean, historically, scientists were all men and probably all dickheads. Um, And that is a little bit what the historical remnant is. But to be not an evolutionary adaptation just means it doesn't serve a reproductive function. And sex doesn't have to have a reproductive function. Pleasure doesn't have to have a reproductive function in order to be valuable and important. What it has to have in order to be valuable and important is the person who's having its sense that it's important. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, we really talk a lot about pleasure for its own sake, touch without intercourse as the goal. And one of the reasons we focus so much on full body touch is because what we know about how stress affects our sex lives. So I would love your thoughts on the relationship between stress and libido, stress and the ability to experience sexual pleasure. How big of a threat do you think stress is to people's sex lives? Stress is in the top five. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's different depending on who you are. Yet another example of individual differences. So for about 80% of people, stress, depression, anxiety uh, hits the brakes. It decreases your interest in sex. For the remaining 20%, it can actually increase your interest in sex. People just vary. I call them flatliners and redliners. Mm. And it's just, and it, there are some things about sensitivity of the brakes and gas that can be predictive of it, but basically people just vary. Um, So if you're in the group that where when you're stressed out, it decreases your interest in sex, man, we have this really stupid culture around stress that says you just like get rid of your stress as though it just disappears automatically and spontaneously. And we don't get that stress is a physiological event that is happening inside your body. And it is designed. So can I tell the whole like you're being chased by a lion story? Sure. Okay, because I mean, I have a whole half a chapter specifically on stress. It was I had this uh, complicated couple of months with my editor uh, trying really hard to make the case that I needed to have two whole chapters in the book that are not about sex Mm. in my book about women's sexuality. Because women's sexual response and sexual pleasure are so dependent on the other factors of their life that you cannot talk about women's sexual well-being without talking about their overall well-being, without talking about their relationship and their trust and their overall attitudes toward bodies and their self-criticism and their self-confidence and their stress and their love. You can't understand how women work sexually unless you understand how sex is integrated into the rest of their lives. So I have a whole half a chapter specifically on stress and it's really important to me. So, okay, I'm gonna talk about stress, okay. (laughs) So here I go. So stress is not the same thing as your stressors. Your stressors are the things out there in the environment that activate the stress in your body. So for a lot of us, that'll be our jobs, potentially our families or other relationships, Uh, your own thoughts, your self-critical thoughts are stressors, right? So these are things that activate the stress response, which is this 
uh, evolutionarily adaptive mechanism designed to help you survive being chased by a lion, right? So the stressor comes in, in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, it's uh, something like a lion. And when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? Oh, me? Yeah. <laughs> you run. <laughs> you run. That's right. And there's only two possible outcomes here. The lion chases you, you start to run, and either you get eaten by the lion, in which case none of the rest of this matters, or you survive. You run back to your village. This is the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, right? So you run back to your village, and everyone in the village helps you to kill the lion, and you have the lion for dinner, and you take the parts of the carcass you're not going to use. The next morning, you bury it in an honoring ceremony, holding hands with everyone in your tribe, giving thanks for the lion's sacrifice. And at the end of all that, you hug your tribe members, and how do you feel? Better. <laughs> Glad to be alive. You're grateful. You love your friends and family. That is the whole stress response cycle. Right? That's how it's supposed to work. We almost never get chased by lions anymore, which is great in its way, but it means that if your stressor is not a lion but is your boss, you don't actually get to run away from or beat the shit out of your boss. Am I allowed to swear? I'm sorry. Absolutely. Beat the shit out of your boss. So if you're feeling stressed out by your boss, what should you do? Right Physical <laughs> activity. Mm. is the thing that communicates to your body that you have successfully escaped the stressor. The fastest shortcut to teaching your body that you are now safe is any kind of physical activity, even if it's just going for a walk. It can be a Zumba class. It can be dancing around in your underwear in your bedroom. Any form of physical activity helps to teach your body that you are safe because it's the physiological equivalent of running away from a lion. It helps you to complete the stress response cycle so that you can be in that place where you feel grateful and you love your friends and family and you're glad to be alive. Hmm. So stress is not a thing that you just turn off. It's a process you have to move through. It's a biological cascade that your body wants to complete. It knows how to complete it. It just needs you to give it a little bit of help. And where would massage fit in? Because that's not a physical activity of exertion, but many people find it to be super relaxing. Why yeah. would that work? So there's an additional stress response mechanism. What I was just talking about is fight or flight. And there's two other really important stress response systems. And massage is the tend and befriend stress response mechanism. So in this case, it's not so much that when you're being chased by a lion, you run. It's that when you are under attack in some way, humans as an ultra social species survive best when we are with our tribe so they can protect us and we can protect them. So when your body is stressed out, it pushes you to go be with your tribe. And literally physical touch changes our chemistry out of the stress response into the relaxation response. When it's happening in a context with a person that we feel really trusting with and when we feel like we're in a safe place and can relax. Interesting. And so this is my kind of uber geeky question about all of this is, is by clearing going into the parasympathetic mode of the nervous system, clearing out stress from the sympathetic nervous system, does that clear the way for arousal to take on the sympathetic nervous system? It's a little more complicated than that because okay. there's sort of two. So, I mean, insert the polyvagal theory here. Uh, basically, the way people traditionally get taught about sympathetic versus parasympathetic is that sympathetic is gas pedal stress and parasympathetic is breaks relaxation good. Mm -hmm. But actually, and that's partly true. That's a chunk of the picture. But a really important other chunk of the picture is that final stress response that I mentioned, which is the freeze stress response. So there's flight 
which is running away, fight, which is anger and attack, tend my friend, which is uh, connecting socially, and there is freeze. So when you're in a life threat situation, you're, you're in the middle of the sympathetic activation, this like runaway stress response. When you get into a life threat situation, the brakes slam on and shut you down right in the middle. So this is the experience of trauma. Uh-huh. People experience tonic immobility. Um, when you have experienced uh, long-term abuse, even in your history or in your relationship right now, your body will begin to choose this stress response as the default stress response sometimes. And we learn to shut down. So that parasympathetic stress response does not facilitate arousal. It locks everything down and you feel permanently unsafe inside your own body. And in the same way that you gradually learn to have orgasm, you gradually learn to relax the break and allow it to come up and learn that you can feel safe inside your own body. I just read the most amazing book uh, called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. which talks about this in an incredibly clear way. And if you've experienced trauma in your life, I so recommend this book by uh, Bessel van der Kolk. It's amazing and great. Um, But in general, what you want is to allow the sympathetic activation to run its course so that you're not hitting the gas pedal and you're not hitting the brakes. You want to be coasting. Mm. And that's the context where arousal and pleasure can really thrive. Beautifully said. Thank you. I want to ask you really quickly, this book is primarily about female sexuality and orgasm. Do you have a take on men's sexuality? Is it as simple as we make it out to be? Or is that too a myth? Well, so my perspective on this is that people of all bodies are made of all the same parts, Mm -hmm. just organized in a different way. And even though there are some predictable patterns, like when you look at a set of female genitals, you can sort of see that there's a pattern there that's different from the set of male genitals, even though the male and female genitals are made of all the same parts, they're organized in these predictable ways. To a lesser extent, there are predictable patterns of organization for female sexuality than for male sexuality. I would describe the male sexual response pattern as being more robust and less sensitive to context, whereas the female pattern is uh, more sensitive to external factors in the same way, the reason we have female contra- hormonal contraception and not male hormonal contraception is that it's sort of easy to disrupt the female reproductive system, whereas it takes a whole lot. It takes a sledgehammer to disrupt the male reproductive system. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's, it's not that they're simple. It's that they're organized in a different way. Beautiful. <laughs> Will it be your next book? I know, God. <laughs> I mean, that's like asking a person who's just given birth what their next child's going to be named. <laughs> I asked my wife the day after our daughter was born if we could have another. (laughs) (laughs) Were you the person who gave birth? No. (laughs) She was up for it, though. All righty, then. Well, thank you so much for writing this book. It is a true gift to us all. It's available now called Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And I highly recommend it. Emily, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Big thanks to Emily Nagoski for sharing her wisdom with us in this two-part interview series. You can find all of the show notes at pleasuremechanics.com. If you have questions you want to submit for future episodes of Speaking of Sex, come on over to pleasuremechanics.com and hit the Ask Us Anything button. We are always one click away. We'll talk to you next week. This is Chris from Pleasure Mechanics wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers.